Shortly before his death in A.D. 14, the first emperor and the founder of the Roman Empire, Caesar Augustus, published a document entitled Res Geste Divi Augusti, or The Deeds of the Divine Augustus. In 35 numbered paragraphs of that document, Augustus spells out his great accomplishments, including his political and military victories, as well as his great generosity to the Roman people. For example, in it, he wrote, In my 19th year, on my own initiative and at my own expense, I raised an army with which I set free the state which was oppressed by the domination of a faction. And also, I often waged war, civil and foreign, on the earth and sea in the whole wide world, and as victor, I spared all the citizens who sought pardon. And again, I rebuilt the capital and the theater of Pompeii, each work at enormous cost without any inscription of my name. And again, I added Egypt to the rule of the Roman people. I recovered from Spain, I recovered from Spain, Gaul, and Dalmatia the many military standards lost through other leaders after defeating enemies. Well, his list of accomplishments reads something like a resume. After his death, this document was engraved on bronze pillars that held up his mausoleum where his body laid in state. Copies of this document were spread throughout all of the Roman Empire so that everyone would know and remember how great the Emperor Augustus was. You know, the temptation to promote ourselves and make ourselves look good in the eyes of others is great. I mean, it's one thing to want to succeed and to want to actually do significant accomplishments. And another thing, to want to appear successful and want people to look upon you as having accomplished great things. If you're more concerned with how you appear to people than with how you actually are, then you will inevitably spend a lot of time and energy trying to make yourself look good in the eyes of others. It's amazing how expert we've become at this. We do it even really subtly, especially in this day and age of social media. In fact, there's a, a term that was coined a few years ago because of the way that we promote ourselves on social media without really trying to, to do so or helping people to think maybe we're not trying to do so. It's called the humble brag. The humble brag. There's lots of illustrations of it. So somebody might, might put up this status. So ashamed of myself for falling asleep at the end of my all-night prayer vigil. You know, or this one. I just got my third promotion at work this month. Isn't God good? You know, the subtext, yeah, but I'm great, right? You know, three promotions one month. Or, I'm such a klutz, I can't even find the spark plug wires on my Lamborghini. You know, we want to be seen as modest while wanting to appear good in other people's eyes. Well, you can boast in obvious or subtle ways, but the goal is always to impress other people. That's what Caesar Augustus had in mind when he wrote his documents and that's what politicians have been doing for 2,000 years after him. 
But politicians aren't the only ones that try to promote themselves to look good in the eyes of others. Religious leaders do it too. And that was what was going on at the church at Corinth in the first century. After Paul planted that church, he stayed there in Corinth for 18 months, discipling the members, evangelizing, helping the church to get well-ordered. But after he left, some self-proclaimed spiritual leaders came to the church, infiltrated it, and began to promote themselves to the congregation. They did so not only by boasting about their own accomplishments and supposed credentials, but by criticizing the Apostle Paul, thereby undermining his authority as an apostle. Paul writes 2 Corinthians in our Bibles in part to expose these false teachers. They were wreaking havoc upon that church that he loved. By misrepresenting Paul, they also caused the Corinthian church members to turn away from the gospel. By their character, as well as their teaching, they were subtly leading members of that church to walk away from Christ. So for the sake of Christ, and for the spiritual welfare of that church, Paul goes after those false teachers in Corinth in the last few chapters of the letter we have in the New Testament called 2 Corinthians. We've been studying our way through this over the last several months. Today, we come to chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians. And in chapter 11, along with the first half of chapter 12, we see the most extensive autobiographical section that Paul writes in the entire New Testament. Now, Paul has already made very clear that generally he hates the idea of boasting. We saw this last week in our study of chapter 10 because most of the time, boasting causes people to try to make themselves look good. And that kind of posturing is completely inappropriate for people who have been rescued from sin and hell by the death of Jesus Christ. So Paul says emphatically in Romans 10, 17, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Nevertheless, though that was his feeling and his understanding, in order to expose these new religious leaders as scam artists and false teachers, in chapter 11 we're going to see that Paul reluctantly begins to boast himself. And we will see that his boasting as an apostle is significantly different from the boasting of these false teachers. And quite honestly, his boasting is different from most boasting that goes on in the world. The main lesson I want us to see from chapter 11 is this, that apostolic boasting makes Jesus Christ look good, not us. And that was Paul's concern. In 2 Corinthians 11, we can see in two parts the way that he approaches this subject. In verses 1 through 15, he tells us why he boasts. And then in verses 16 through 33, he explains how he boasts. So I want us to look at this passage together this morning. It's found on page 969. If you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you in the chair in front of you, and encourage you to keep your Bibles open this morning because I'm going to be working our way through these various uh, passages that are in this chapter, and, and you'll be better served if you keep the copy of God's Word open in front of you. If you're not familiar with reading a Bible or looking at a Bible, the big numbers on the page are chapter divisions, the little numbers on the pages are verse divisions. So we're going to start in chapter 11, verse 1, again, if you're using one of the Bibles provided on page 969. So follow along as I read God's Word aloud from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 
I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I'm unskilled in speaking, I'm not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preach God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Well, let's stop there in our consideration of this chapter this morning. Paul tells us in these verses why he's going to engage in boasting. Why boast? Well, he's concerned for their spiritual well-being. Verses 1 through 4, he lays it out there that the reason he's about to do what he will do is because he loves them, he's concerned for them. He feels foolish about what he's about to do. He feels foolish at the thought of he himself as an apostle of Jesus boasting. So he makes sure that the Corinthians understand his hesitancy. You can read it, can't you? You can feel it as you consider his words. He said, I don't want to go down this road, but I feel compelled to go down this road. And because of my concerns for you, I'm willing to do it. Verse 2, he says, I'm jealous for you. He's jealous with a divine jealousy. In other words, the same way that God has a just jealousy for his own honor and glory in his people and in his world. And so God takes it seriously when his people begin to treat him as less than God. He is jealous for his people's devotion to him. Paul compares himself to a father of a daughter who he has betrothed this daughter to a man. So he's given permission to the man to become engaged to this daughter. And he looks forward to the day when he will present this daughter to this man to whom she's betrothed as a pure bride. He said, that's the way I think about you with regard to Jesus. I've pledged you to Jesus. I've brought the gospel of Jesus to you. You've become followers of Jesus. And I'm looking forward to the day when Jesus returns that you will be a part of that presentation of His bride that is pure and spotless without any stain. So He's jealous for them, but He knows that they are vulnerable because the devil is shrewd. In verse 3, Paul's thinking about 
the tactics, the strategies of the devil. He successfully tripped up the first bride this world ever knew. He came to Eve and deceived her. And Paul says, I'm fearful that just as that happened, the devil might come and lead you away from a simple, pure devotion to Jesus Christ as Lord. Well, how did the devil successfully tempt Eve? Well, he caused Eve, first of all, to doubt God's word. Did God really say? Just a little doubt in her mind. And then he convinced her that disobeying God's word wasn't really a big deal. And in fact, if she would do what she wanted to do, rather than what God said to do, it would be best for her. Well, that's the same strategy that the devil uses today with us. He deceives people into thinking that it's not a big deal to disobey God. In fact, when you consider what God says versus what you want, you can find many reasons to think doing what you want, contrary to what God says, is justified. In fact, might even be better to your way of thinking. Well, the Corinthians are gullible. The devil's deceitful. And Paul sees this combination and he says, I'm fearful for you. In verse 4, he describes their gullibility. <laughs> Readily enough, he said, you've already put up with another Jesus. These guys that came in talking about Jesus. They're not talking about the same Jesus I preached to you. You accepted it. They put up with a different spirit, a, a different attitude that is a result of the Holy Spirit working in a person. They put up with that. They have put up with a different gospel. These false teachers undoubtedly added to the message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. And the Corinthians readily enough put up with that. You know, there's an old spiritual song that goes like this. Everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. Evidently, the Corinthians didn't know that song. So here these guys come in, talking about Jesus, using the right vocabulary, and they just assumed, oh, this has got to be good. And they were easily led astray. Brothers and sisters, we desperately need to exercise discernment today. We need discernment. We need discernment because the devil is deceitful. And he's always trying to lead people off of the right path. And there are hundreds of teachers today who present themselves as spiritual guides who through their writings, through their TV ministries, internet ministries, through their personal ministries, would lead you straight to hell if you follow them. So we need to be wise. It was going on in the first century. It continues on in the 21st century. The devil ensnared Adam and Eve when they were without sin. And he loves to ensnare people today who are stained with sin. So Paul's concerned, first of all, for their spiritual well-being. That's one reason that he's willing to go down this road of boasting. He tells us a second reason, beginning in verse 5. And that is, he's not inferior to these false teachers. He knows that. So he begins in verse 5 to engage in some sanctified sarcasm. I mean, there's a lot of sarcasm. In this passage, it was a little bit of a trouble for me to, to sort through this and try to think about sarcasm, but it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we, we know that in this way, it's legitimate. 
And you know, sarcasm is an effective and yet a, a very dangerous way of communicating. You can make a point very effectively with sarcasm. It's effective when it hits a, its target appropriately and highlights something that needs to be exposed as foolish or sinful to be rejected. So when sarcasm works, it can be sanctified. But it's dangerous because it's easy to miss the mark and to be not helpful, but simply hurtful. But Paul here, inspired by the Spirit, engages in a sanctified sarcasm. Look what he does. He calls these teachers that have come in super apostles. It's not because he thinks they're really super. It's because that's the way they've been presenting themselves, boasting about their own accomplishments and credentials by putting Paul down. Though he doesn't engage in their practice of eloquent Greek oratory, which they no doubt called to the attention of the church at Corinth. Paul's not even a really good speaker, perhaps they said. He's very clear on the content of the gospel. So in verse 6, I'm not behind them in knowledge. I've been taught by Jesus Christ. He preached the gospel to the Corinthians free of charge, which obviously made him the object of further ridicule by these so-called super apostles in verse 7. To understand this, we need to know a little of the background of Corinth. We talked about this early on, but let me remind you that professional philosophers and orators were all the rage in the first century Greek and Roman world. People in that culture could make a good living by their words if they were properly trained in the right schools. In fact, the more accomplished a speaker was, the higher price he could charge for his speeches. So you see all this flack about politicians making a lot of money on speeches. It didn't start in the 21st century. It has a history to it back in the Greek and Roman world. That was their culture. That was the worldview of Corinth. Paul knew this when he went to Corinth. And so, very intentionally, when he went there, he refused to take any money for his ministry. He would not do anything that would even give a hint to suggest that he was selling the gospel in the same way that the philosophers were selling their wit and wisdom to the highest bidders. The gospel is not some clever story designed to entertain. The gospel is a message that contains the power of God to transform those who believe it. The gospel reveals what God has done for people like you and me, sinners, in order to provide salvation for us. The gospel explains how a person who has broken God's law can be forgiven by the lawgiver. The gospel tells us that God sent His own Son into the world to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And that is to measure up to God's righteousness revealed in His commandments. Jesus did that. He never once sinned. And then the law of God requires sinners who break His commandments to be punished with an everlasting punishment because we sin against an everlasting eternal God. And Jesus paid that as the infinite Son of God enduring God's wrath against sin. That's the gospel. This is what Jesus did. And when we tell what Jesus did and we set before people this incredible provision of salvation and reconciliation to our Creator, when they turn from sin and trust Jesus as Lord, We are preaching the gospel. And that gospel, when you believe it, 
will transform you. It will make you right with God. It will accept, God will accept you on the basis of Jesus Christ when you bow to Christ as Lord. Now some of you are here this morning and you've never bowed to Christ as Lord. I want you to be real clear. I want to be clear with you and want to help you understand as clear as I know how. That's why Paul went to Corinth. It was to proclaim this gospel so that Corinthians would be delivered, saved out of their way of life in rebellion to God and become reconciled to God as his children. That's why Paul went to Corinth. That's why this church is in Cape Coral. That's our mission as well. We want people to come to know this God through his provisions of grace in Jesus Christ. And if you'll trust Christ, you'll experience transformation. God will accept you. You'll be able to pillow your head tonight knowing that on the authority of what God has said in his word, every last one of your sins is forgiven because of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus has done. As you trust him, confess him as Lord, turning away from how you've been living, you will experience the blessings of his salvation. Making that understandable and accessible was so important to Paul that he refused to accept any money from the Corinthians to support himself. Now, he had written in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that it's completely legitimate that those who preach the gospel should live off of the gospel. There's nothing wrong or sinful about that. But he goes on to say in verse 9 in this passage that there were times when he lived in need. He had to do without, but rather than tell the Corinthians so that they would give him something to meet the need, he waited until the Macedonians came with money from other churches to support him. You see, his point is in this culture of Corinth where speakers would get paid for their words, Paul says, I am not going to give any hint of being a part of that crowd. The message I have is not for sale. What I'm doing is not to feather my own nest. I'm bringing to you words of life, words of salvation. So he speaks to them again very sarcastically in verse 8. He says, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. He's wanting to hold up before the Corinthians the fallacy of these false teachers to expose them in what they are doing. They were making a good living off of their supposed ministry in Corinth. And they used the fact that Paul was not paid at all for his ministry as an occasion to ridicule him. You get what you pay for, right? <laughs> What'd you pay Paul? Get my point? He must not be worth much. He can't charge much for his words. But Paul knows he's not inferior to them in any way. In fact, he knows that their way of living and thinking indicates that they are false teachers in reality. They don't even know Jesus Christ. He goes on to say later, they are servants of Satan. So that's another reason that he is willing to boast. Because he knows he's not inferior to these guys that have come in and tried to exalt themselves above him. A third reason that he does it is found in verses 10 and 11 and 12. It's because simply he just loves them. He loves them. He's not going to change his practice because of their taunts against him. He'll continue to minister the way that he has ministered. Not because he does not love them, 
Evidently, that was another charge that they were making against Paul. Why, he won't even let you help him. He doesn't love you. He does it for the exact opposite reason, because he does love them. Why? Because I don't love you? That's what they're accusing. Absolutely not. God knows that I love you. He has been and will continue to be motivated by genuine love for their souls. Though some of his practices, some of the things that he's written to them and had to say to them, have been twisted by his accusers to suggest that it evidences he does not love them, Paul will not let their accusations go unrefuted. He's done what he's done. He said what he said out of genuine love. And that same love is what motivates him to write as he's going to write in the last half of this chapter. So the fourth reason he gives us for why he's willing to engage in boasting, verses 13 through 15, quite simply, is that these false teachers are servants of Satan. Paul takes his gloves off in these last couple of verses. He states the facts in plain, direct, unvarnished, offensive language. Just listen to it again. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Paul uses language to indicate that these men are shysters. They're con artists. They're posers. They're servants of Satan who, like their master, pretend to be something that they are not. Now, brothers and sisters, wouldn't it be great if Satan always called ahead, let, he, let you know he's coming? You know, if he showed up with a business card, hey, here I am on the scene. It's not the way he works. He's a deceiver. He pretends to be something that he's not. He, he uses people to accomplish his purposes in very subtle ways. People he takes captive to do his will become just like him in how he acts. That's why it is imperative to know God's word and to submit to God's word completely. Otherwise, you will be easy pickings to be led astray by slick, persuasive, false teachers who, whether they know it or not, are servants of Satan. So Paul saw what was at stake and his pastoral heart would not sit idly by and let those false teachers continue to disrupt the church that he loved. So he enters the field, the very field where they have staked their claim. And he begins to boast about his life and ministry just as they, as they have boasted about theirs. That's what verses 16 through 33 make very clear. But what it also makes clear is that there is a stark difference between apostolic boasting and the boasting of those who don't know Christ. They boast to make themselves look great. Paul boasts to make Jesus Christ look great. Listen to the way he does it. As I start reading verse 16 of 2 Corinthians 11, I'm going to read all the way down to the end of the chapter. So take your Bibles and follow along with me as I read. I repeat, let no one think me foolish. But even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools 
being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys. In danger from rivers. Danger from robbers. Danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship. Through many a sleepless night. In hunger and thirst. Often without food. In cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me for all my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who's made to fall and I'm not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, He who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Eridus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Notice the way that Paul boasts in these words. He does it in a way that exposes the folly of the boasting of these so-called spiritual leaders. He starts out saying, boasting really is fool's talk. Paul wants to make very clear to the Corinthians that they know that he knows that he's deviating from his standard operational procedures as a minister of the gospel. He's about to speak, as he says in verse 17, not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Now, this is not a question of inspiration. Paul's not saying, okay, now the Lord's no longer telling me what to write here. I'm no longer inspired by the Spirit. That's not it at all. He's simply saying, I'm not speaking the way of Christ. This is not the way of Christ to engage in Boasting. He actually goes on to say that being impressed by boasting is real foolishness. He points this out to the Corinthians in a very painful way. Verse 19, he, he basically says, you're the real fools. And he says this with biting sarcasm. I mean, there's no other way to read this and understand its meaning. For you gladly bear with fools being wise yourselves. You see what he's doing? He's highlighting for them their practice that has become so common in their minds they haven't even thought about it. But when Paul comes in and sarcastically exposes it, it highlights it with the hope that they will see it and grieve over their own foolishness. The boasting of false teachers has created turmoil in the church. Look at verse 20. He lists there five specific ways that their boasting has negatively affected the church. He says they make you slaves. In other words, you've become now their servants. They devour you, probably a reference to financially what they are doing to them. They take advantage of you. They put on airs. They come across like they're something. They strike you in the face. 
That, that may be literal because you recall one time when Paul was speaking before the high priest, someone slapped him because he said it's not right to speak against the high priest. And so that was a custom among certain Jewish groups. And so it may be they literally were slapping him in the face every time they thought they said something that was dishonoring to these false teachers' way of thinking. But it could just be figuratively used as well. The point is, they put you down. And Paul confesses, oh, yeah, I'm too weak to do that to you. Because that was part of their accusation. This Paul guy, when he shows up, he's just a weakling. He's a weakling. I mean, look how manly we are. Look at the way we are leading you. He's referring to this criticism that they've made against him. As we read Paul's words, it sounds crazy to us that anyone, any church, that the Corinthians would put up with this kind of abuse. Why in the world would they? Why would anybody put up with this kind of abuse, whether it's physical or sexual or spiritual? Why does anyone who is abused have any affection for their abuser? If you've been abused, you may have experienced this. If you know people who have been abused, you may have tried to help them work through this and things just don't seem reasonable to you that they would still want to go back and want to be with the abuser. Why is that? On August 23, 1973, two machine gun carrying criminals entered a bank in Stockholm, Sweden. Blasting their guns, one prison escapee by the name of John Eric Olson announced to the terrified bank employees, the party has just begun. The two bank robbers held four hostages, three women, three women and one man, for the next 131 hours. They strapped them with dynamite. They held them in the bank vault until they were finally rescued on August 28th. After their rescue, the hostages exhibited shocking attitudes considering all that they'd been through. They'd been threatened, they'd been abused, they feared for their lives for over five days. But in media interviews, it began to come out that they supported their captors. They actually feared the law enforcement officials who were trying to rescue them. The hostages began to think that their captors were protecting them. One of the women who had been held hostage later became engaged to one of the criminals who had abused her. Another one set up a legal defense fund to aid in their criminal defense fees. I mean, they had bonded with their abusers in a way that startled everyone who was familiar with the case. Psychologists and psychiatrists later named this irrational attachment to abuse, abuse victims had for their abusers as the Stockholm Syndrome. The very people who have abused you begin to be considered by the abusers as those who deserve affection and loyalty and devotion. There's something in our fallen human nature that can trigger that. You've seen it, maybe you've lived it. Something similar to that is what was going on in Corinth. These guys had come in and abused the church and the church, for the most part, had followed after them and were loving that and defending them and willing to give up on Paul who had poured his life out for them and the gospel message that he had originally brought to them. These guys are serving their own purposes and the Corinthian church is happy to have it that way. Well, Paul saw it. He wasn't about to stand for it. 
So he determines to expose their illegitimacy by engaging in a little apostolic boasting himself. Verse 23 is where it begins. First of all, they're not better than he is ethnically. Are they Hebrews? Me too. Israelites? Me too. Offspring of Abraham? Me too. Now Paul could have said a whole lot more. He did say more in Philippians chapter 3 when he writes in verse 4, If anyone else thinks he has reasons for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul says, you want to pour your Jewish credentials out on the table, then just step back and look at mine. He took second place to no one ethnically. So when these guys came in and said, oh yeah, we're from Jerusalem. We're from the mother church. We're Jews. Paul says, means nothing. But then in verse 23, he really gets going. And he boasts in being a servant of Christ. Listen to the way he begins it. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. Now, I've tried to imagine, what, what must this have sounded like to the church at Corinth? They're gathering on the Lord's Day like we are. Letter from Paul showed up. <clears throat> it's being read. And you're one of those super apostles. You're one of those false teachers. Paul's already called you a servant of Satan. And he's saying, I'm going to boast. I'm going to show that I'm a better servant of Christ than they are. What would you have expected to come next? I mean, you know how you operate, right? You got your resume. You've been promoting your credentials and all your accomplishments and all the accolades that have come your way. When you heard that Paul was going to start boasting, what would you have expected? D. Carson suggests they probably would have expected something like this. They expected to hear Paul say, I've established more churches. I've preached the gospel in more lands to more ethnic groups. I've traveled more miles. I've won more converts. I've written more books. I've raised more money. I've dominated more councils. I've walked with God more fervently, seen more visions. I've commanded the greatest crowds and performed the most spectacular miracles than any of these guys. That's probably what they expected because given the opportunity, that's what they would have done. But instead, when Paul begins to boast, he lists out things that would have been an embarrassment to these false teachers. So in verse 23, generally he says, I have had far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. This is his boasting. And then he gets specific in verse 24, 25. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes last one. Three times beaten with rods, once stoned, three times shipwrecked, night and day adrift at the sea. 39 lashes. That was according to Jewish law, so we know that this is from Jews that he experienced these lashes. Deuteronomy chapter 25 says that 40 was the maximum limit that you could whip a Jewish man. And the reason that 39 then became the common way of, of administering those lashes was to make sure you didn't go above it. If you went above it, then you yourself were liable to the same punishment. So it was 39 lashes. He said it got that five times. Can you imagine that? 195 times? So I mean, he had experienced the first one sometime. And they would do this at synagogues. And so Paul goes to the synagogue. It was his custom when he went to a city. He would go to the synagogue, try to preach the gospel there. Get kicked out of the synagogue, then he would go to the Gentiles. So he goes to the synagogue, he gets 
39 lashes. Then he goes to another city. Goes to the synagogue. He knows what's going to happen. 39 more. 39. And he's done it five times by the point that he writes this letter. Beaten with rods. Well, that was the Romans' preferred way of meeting out their punishment. We see this happening in Philippi. Paul records it for us in Acts 16. Or Luke records it about Paul in Acts 16. He was beaten with rods there. Shipwrecks. Shipwrecks. I mean, we only have one recorded shipwreck of Paul. And that took place after he wrote 1 Corinthians. And so there were shipwrecks before this. Stoning, we do have an account of that in Acts chapter 14 at Lystra by a Jewish mob. Paul's saying, I'm going to boast. Here's what's on my resume. Then in verse 26, various dangers. On frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, robbers, my own people, Gentiles, in the city, in the wilderness, at sea, false brothers, which would have been particularly apropos to call out to the Corinthians because that's what's going on there. Paul says, I have been in danger. I've suffered because of false brothers. Verse 27, he mentions things specifically that he chose in toil and hardship. He was, he was a, a tent maker. And so he chose to, to be bivocational, to do this work, to keep the Corinthians from having any ground to say they bought the gospel from him. Sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, without food, cold, exposure. And then on top of all of that, in verses 28 and 29, are what Kent Hughes calls his pastoral heartache. Listen to this. And apart from the other things, there's the daily pressure on me of anxiety for all the churches. Paul says, I'm thinking about these churches. I'm thinking about the gospel. Thinking about the dangers, the work of the devil trying to disrupt the work of Christ. Who's weak? And I'm not weak. I, I see someone... Weak, see somebody stumbling and I just burn. It grieves me, it breaks my heart. I can't just ignore what God's people are going through that I've invested my life in. When I see them suffer, I suffer. That's what Paul's saying here. And then in verse 30, he boils it all down. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Paul says, I'm going to boast. Not the way these false teachers boast. Not the way most people boast. I'm going to boast in the things that I've suffered. And then he, interestingly, caps it all off with an account we'll look at again next week of what happened to him shortly after he was converted. You remember when Paul was on the road to Damascus, he was going there as a persecutor of Christians. He got arrested by Jesus on the way. Jesus appeared to him and he was saved. He, he, he opened Paul's eyes and showed him the truth about God. Paul thought he was serving God. Jesus showed him, no, you're actually working against God because I'm God the Son who died for sinners. And Paul was saved by Jesus, went on into Damascus. And when he went toward Damascus as a persecutor, he left Damascus being persecuted. And I think he's making a point here to set us up for the rest of the things he's going to write in chapter 12. But it's fascinating to see how Paul boasts. I mean, it's quite a resume, isn't it? It's nothing at all like Caesar Augustus and what he put on his document. It's not at all like the false teachers had put on their resume. So why did Paul do it? 
Why did he boast in this way? I think there are several reasons that we can discern from the text. First, it was all true. He didn't make up anything. In, in fact, this little list of the difficulties that Paul experienced in his life, we know about some of them from the book of Acts and other letters, but we don't know about most of them, and they indicate to us how very little we do know about the details of Paul's life. But he's telling things that actually happened to him as an apostle, so it's true. Secondly, he was doing this to expose the arrogance and the wickedness of those parasitic false apostles that were injuring the Corinthian church. Because it's the Spirit of God inside of the Corinthian believers instructs them and helps them to receive the words of the Apostle Paul, they're going to recognize that Paul's describing a life that very much exemplifies the life of our suffering, crucified, risen Savior. And it's in stark contrast to the lives of these slick super apostles who came in promoting themselves. He wants to expose them. Thirdly, I think he's forcing the Corinthians to face up to their own foolishness. They had been so easily led astray by the flash and polish of these false teachers with all their boastings and their accomplishments. And Paul reminds them of the sufferings that he endured for their very sake, the sake of others, in order to get the gospel to them. But most importantly, I'm convinced the reason that Paul says all that he does when he boasts about his service to Christ because Paul's concerned to make Christ look great, not himself. And when you compare Paul's boasting to what we can piece together from this passage about the boasting of these false apostles, who is it that makes Jesus look greater? Who do you read and come away with thinking, isn't Jesus Christ great? The man who manipulates people in order to pay him when he talks about Jesus? Or the man who refused to take any money and suffered and was beaten and was left for dead, was shipwrecked, was stoned because he wanted to make the gospel of Jesus known to people? Which testimony makes Jesus look greater? If Jesus turns out to be an imposter, the gospel false, these false apostles, they'll still look okay. Not a bad life. Making money off your words. But if Jesus turns out to be an imposter and the gospel false with Paul's resume, Paul looks like an absolute fool. He gambled his life on a delusion. Brothers and sisters, what is it that makes Paul willing to risk his whole life? Comforts, opportunities, benefits for the sake of Jesus Christ. What's going on in him? Paul had come to know something about Christ that he never could get out of his mind. That having Jesus was more valuable than having health, having wealth, having status, 
having opportunities, having ease. He had experienced something in coming to know Jesus Christ by faith. Sometimes I think we make so little of Jesus because we don't see all that we have in Jesus. And Paul could not get over what he saw in Jesus. He, he was going to live his life to know him, make him known. Does that, I wonder, does that characterize us today? Is that the norm for those of us who follow Christ today? To prepare our lives with the way Paul was willing to live? My unbelieving friend, I, I want to ask you a question and encourage you to put this question to yourself. Why did Paul do this? Why submit himself time after time after time to beatings, imprisonment, mistreatment? Why would he deprive himself the way that he did? There's only one explanation for that. And that is this. That Jesus Christ saved Paul from religion. Paul was a very religious guy when he was on his way to Damascus. Some of you here this morning, you might be very religious. But the question is, have you found something in your life that's worth dying for? Anything in your life worth dying for? Anything worth suffering for? Paul found something worth suffering for when he recognized what God had done for him and giving up his own son for him, that Jesus had come into the world to save a self-righteous prig like himself from religion that he thought was great but was taking him straight to hell. He was transformed to begin to live for Jesus, to make this good news known no matter what the cost. Don't you want something like that in your life? Don't you want something in your life that gives meaning, purpose, significance to how you're going to spend the rest of your days? Don't you want something worth dying for? The one thing, the one thing, is Jesus Christ. What Jesus has done. He's a great Savior for great sinners. Paul discovered that he was a great sinner. He discovered that Jesus was a great Savior willing to save him. And being saved, he laid his life out. He was willing to go and do anything God called him to go and do for the purpose of making this great Savior known. If you don't know Christ, our desire is for you to come to know Him, to receive Him, to experience the forgiveness, the acceptance of God that is found in Jesus Christ. Then like Paul, you'll be able to boast, not of all your accomplishments, but of all that God has done for you and the ways that He's put you together, how He's guided you, because His Son, is a great Savior. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your faithfulness to us and giving us your word. Thank you for the Apostle Paul. What you did in him, how you saved him, revealed Jesus in him. We thank you for his testimony, even his boasting in this chapter that shows us how to measure our lives rightly. Oh God, show us what you showed Paul. Work in us deeply by your spirit. For we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.